This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hi, newbies. We are here. It is... uh, it is Memorial Day weekend. Yes, it is. We are on episode 116 of In Class with Carr. We, we, you know, I haven't seen you in a while since Monday. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm catching up because we are about to do another Monday. And I'm going to be sitting in in uh, community with you and Larry Crow. Larry I, Crow is coming, the Delaney man. Yes. I can't wait. And I'm I'm reading um the uh Blake, which I've never read, and I'm 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 trudging through it because it's it's not. For my ears, for my spirit, it's not, you know I have to I have to work through it. So I'm so grateful to you and how you break it down on Monday because I'm like I I wouldn't read this book because yeah, it's like what is what is what is he saying? Yeah. Okay, let me read something. Like, let me go to the shade room. No, no, I'm joking. But you know, it's like, <laughs> no, 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 and that, that was real for me. Blake is there. Uh, in fact, I was just at San Kofi yesterday, and uh, you know, by the way, you all. It's been two years, of course, we just passed the George Floyd uh, murder date anniversary, which was Memorial Day weekend. And we know that we talked about that. But um, already it's not the memory hasn't faded. It's disappeared in terms of like all the white people who bought guilt books at the black bookstores have gone back to what they were doing before. So I was sitting with the young staff at Sankofa yesterday, just, you know, catching up on stuff. And by the way, they they the Blake books have been flying off the shelves at the black bookstores. But I'm just saying that and by way of passing to say that uh, don't forget. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is this momentum of memory, because what we're building now is enduring. And as it grows, it's time to uh, grow some more exponentially. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the most beautiful thing about being in, in community with you is that, you know, what I had envisioned of building kind of this two 2000 year project that would be here long after we're gone of like collecting information, marking time, marking time, you know, so we have a whole black people started Memorial Day conversation that we had. We had a George Floyd, you know, two years in a row that circled into Juneteenth. So like there's just this collection and narrative now of of these classes that are rooted in history, but also in memory, which can't be erased. So I appreciate um, that. Yeah. And that's just a down payment. Every topic we've talked about, we could have gone into much more detail with and having staked it out. Now we can return and take our time because it's not about, as you know, better than I do. It's not about one or two or three or 15 or 20 of us talking uh, and then everybody listening. Study is, you know, we, nobody can help anybody else study in terms of doing that work for themselves. So what we're doing now, I mean, again, folks who are listening, if you're not yet in there, they Nubia. You know, to have 1,200 people or 1,300 people on a Monday night, that is the work. We'll do a little, we'll, we'll kind of come back to part of that today, I think, in terms of that close reading. Because Blake is not a book that is uh, included at universities beyond graduate school, people like that. And it's not an easy book because it's written in 19th century prose. It's really more of a political track. It's not a, like a literary novel. But as we saw Monday night, and as we'll see again on Memorial Day Monday night, when we grapple with the issues being raised, it just comes alive. No, do you, you know, do you escape? Do you stay? What you keep praying, but I'm praying, but I'm fighting too. I mean, I mean, intergenerational, all this. I mean, it's all there, but it, but it's not something for a professor like you or me to talk to somebody. No, 
Let's 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 reason. Let's work together. That's slow work, and that's but that's the work that endures. Because then that leads to action. Now we can act because we've we've absorbed it. And as I was telling you before we went live, in the old, I, I was on. I went through Newark on the way to New York earlier this week, and I got accosted by hardcore uh, brother Elwan. I'm thinking about these cats, sister Fatia. I mean, outside Madison Square Garden in East Newark on the way to the path train. These. With, not, with all due respect to all of our friends, both of our friends who, you know, you see in the white face and social structure media, always talking and being interviewed and writing them. This ain't what this, that ain't this. This is governance. And these are people who, when they told me, you know, I love Karen. I li they listen to you every day. And then on the weekends. And then the sister was like, I'm in newbie. Oh, what? You, yeah, I mean, and then and I'll, I'll say this. I, I want to belabor because I know you can really open the way for us. She said this as we were departing. This is in front of Madison Square Garden. So she embraced me. I embraced her. And then she said in my ear, black people got to stick together. I mean, that jewel, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That ain't nothing but the ancestors can. I want to thank you. I mean, that's not, you know, that ain't MSNBC. That's not CNN. It's not trying to beg for our humanity or explain what's wrong with this sick country or help us. Nah. Black people got to stick together. That was a governance. It was the purest form of governance wisdom. Uh, but thank you. I just, anyway, I just wanted to let you that. That's what I mean, we're building. <laughs> you know, the brick analogy, you know, and then you're like, let's do office hours. So I'm like, yes, that's what professors, but it's so, so when Nduku came in, Mm -hmm. I was on Monday in Nubia. I was like, and what she dropped in there, I, I was sitting there like, this is why we have this space because where else can she go to express the things that she's feeling and also working through because we're all working through something right now. There's, there's, there's a lot happening in this country. And since the last time we came together, uh, 19 babies were, were murdered. And, and I must admit, this is 17 of them, but this is the cover of the New York Times from Thursday. So many covers. I mean, but to see those babies, to see those brown babies, and shout out to the Texas law enforcement, you punk MFs. Got one, got parents on the ground wrestling. This baby called, and today's, again, and I, I mean, obviously I'm a subscriber to New York Times. You read the New York Times, the papers every day, and, you know, we do it because it's there. But the cover of today's Times, no, 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 come on back. I'm just going right quick. This is the, uh, the police and the police now she pleaded this is the the call you know they put the graphic in with the call how many times this baby called the damn police and she didn't need to call 911 why 911 why as they write here it says uh she whispered to a 911 operator just after noon that she was in the classroom with the gunman she called back again and again quote please send the police now and quote she begged but they were already there waiting in a school hallway just outside and they had been there for more than an hour you shovel mouth bastard oh greg abbott you shovel mouth bastard you and kim paxton you bastard standing there with your little manhood behind you and ted cruz you punk yeah better work should have got up on stage and beat y'all ass but it's all right because guess what the daddy kane said i'm coming i'm coming <laughs> here we are <laughs> r-a-w now, so, so, so in other words, keep doing what you're doing, baby. Keep doing what you're doing, baby. Call and she ain't need to call while they were standing outside with their punk asses, listening to the gunshot for an hour. 
So oh, you know what? But, but but they'll break in, bust into Brianna Taylor's house, or yeah, kill her. Yeah, into, into a home with a man sleeping on a couch with no oh, guns. A mere right? lie, no question. So there's no knock warrants where you bust into people's houses with bar, you know, with the battering ram with no problem. You ain't no, you no. had to get a key. I mean, you know, but the insanity of it, hmm. we, we could sit here all day. And, and as you're talking, I'm also saying, will Texas show up to vote in November? Because they have know. a clear choice now. But will they show up to vote in November to make sure that there's at least somebody in office who will care about the Maybe people? Not. Maybe not. Maybe so, not. Like, so, so then what are we doing? Right. Well, so Mark, we, we talked about you know, where do we go from here? Really? We talked about, we talked about Malcolm. It, Malcolm was very clear. The ballot or the bullet. See, here's the problem people don't understand. If you don't vote, okay, we'll handle it the other way. In other words, see, the, the people say, why am I voting? You're voting so you ain't got to go in the street and fight physically. Now, we have, we, we both know people. And, I, and I'm sure you've been getting the same message I've been getting over the last week. I got friends and family. You know, my mother, that's what made, she made transition in Houston. In fact, we just came up on an anniversary, uh, I think it was uh, 40 years ago. Can you believe it's been 40 years? 1982, I think, uh, the, the, the last week of May when Lee Brown was made the first black police commissioner in Houston. Of course, he became the mayor, as you know. But I'm just saying, it doesn't matter who the cop is. It doesn't matter who the, what the law is. Gil Scott Heron had a song with Brian Jackson, No Knock, No Knock on My Telephone. No, we've been dealing with No Knock for a long time. The challenge is, if you don't fix it with policy, I've been getting messages all week from people in Texas, because Texas, y'all want to do open carry? No problem, chief. Here's what's not going to happen. You're not going to shoot my baby in the grocery store. Black people are now strapped walking around in the grocery store more than were before. Why? Because, okay, if you're not going to vote them out, no problem. We will blow your MF brains out. What you're not going to do is kill my child in the streets. And that's when you're going to find out what these chicken heart punks are really about. You draw your weapon, we draw our weapon. And guess what? I ain't never going to bet against. Do you know who has the record of having to fight for our lives in this country? Hint, it ain't you. So you go ahead and don't vote, y'all. We'll see you. We'll come see you. Because them cats that I saw that love you so much, Karen, like you said, you ain't never got to worry. If they thought for a minute somebody was going to bother you, you would have to, you couldn't, you couldn't stop them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So y'all going to find out. This, this is really what Malcolm was saying in the Battle of the Buddha. It ain't about political consciousness. It's not like everybody's going to be out there fighting because we all have the same ideological orientation and we've all studied. No, this is going to be like, in fact, um, uh, Immortal Technique, your friend, right? When he, uh, when he said Bin Laden didn't blow up the projects, he said, you know, if enough, if an army invaded the hood tonight, we would be war. It would be warfare from Harlem to Washington Heights. I wouldn't be fighting to keep the occupation out, my nigga. I'd be fighting for my people. My people survive. In other words, oh, what do you think about? The, I don't know about the political. I know this. Know that they jumped in on my abuela, so now I'm going to murder everything. Moving. In other words, that's the alternative. Malcolm wasn't saying vote because I believe in America. Malcolm said vote because I know most of y'all ain't ready for that, and that is what's coming. So anyway, let me start. so anyway, but go ahead, Prof, because you and and and, the, and this conversation, this conversation must be had, but it's the one conversation that uh will get a video taken down from YouTube because nobody wants to have that. You see what I'm saying? So of course, you know it's interesting. Um, and nobody, nobody's advocating for it. 
No, no. That's the, that's the thing. It's the opposite. Malcolm is saying, no, I don't want this. I don't want this. So let's, no question. Uh, all right. So do you think, because um, I titled this, you know, where do we go from here? Yes. Um, you know, there's another cap um, who I didn't know because I don't watch baseball because, you know. for even, at, even as you you covered it for a time, I'm sure you covered it. Again. Yeah, but, you How know. You avoid, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, they're about to say uh gabe kapler who was the 2021 manager of the year gabe uh, kapler, yeah. san francisco giants manager steve kerr let's start with him uh got up and was like we're not talking about basketball today we're going to talk about what happened in texas and you know steve kerr's daddy uh was murdered um assassinated when he was in uh 18 years old uh he was an ambassador or a professor, a professor yeah i think he ran was it american university was it yeah, beirut? yeah in beirut yep mm -hmm. uh so you know he he knows what loss is violent uh -huh. loss. um so you know he was like what is going to, but he's been vocal since you know since since always he's never been quiet george floyd to, to me you know all, he's always him and um um, was it the San 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 uh, San Antonio coach? Um, oh, you talking about um, yeah, Popovich. Face, Popovich. Yeah. Popovich. Yeah. yeah, Popovich is always right. Yeah, right. That's um, right. But I've never heard anybody in Major League Baseball, you know, really come out vocally. Uh, so this guy Gabe Kapler, uh, he wrote a piece on his website. I'm just gonna read a little bit of it. Cap Life Style Cap Lifestyle .com. He said, um, we weren't given bravery. He wrote this piece and we aren't free. The police on the scene put a mother in handcuffs as she begged them to go in and save her children. They blocked parents trying to organize to charge in to stop the shooter, including a father who learned his daughter was murdered while he argued with the cops. We aren't free when politicians decide that the lobbyists and gun industries are more important than our children's freedom to go to school without needing bulletproof backpacks and active shooter drills. He said, um, I'm often struck before our games by the lack of delivery of the promise. So he has decided he is not coming out for the national anthem. He said, I'm often struck before our games by the lack of delivery of the promise of what our national anthem represents. We stand in honor of a country we, where we elect representatives to serve us, to thoughtfully consider and enact legislation and protect, that protects the interests of all the people in this country and to move this country forward towards the vision of the quote, shining city on the hill, but instead we thoughtlessly link our moment of silence and grief with the equally thoughtless display of celebration for a country that refuses to take up the concept of controlling the sale of weapons used nearly exclusively for the mass slaughter of human beings. We have our moment over and over, and then we move on without demanding real change from the people we empower to make these changes. We stand, we bow our heads, and the people in power leave on recess celebrating their own patriotism at every turn. Every time I place my hand over my heart and remove my hat, I'm participating in a self-congratulatory glorification of the only capital only country where they're where these mass shootings take place. On Wednesday, I walked out onto the field. I listened to the announcement as we honored the victims in Uvalde. I bowed my head. I stood for the national anthem. Metallica riffed on City Connect guitars. Hmm. And he goes on, I'm not okay with the state of this country and I wish I hadn't let my discomfort compromise my integrity. Mm -hmm. I wish that I could have demonstrated what I learned from my dad, that when you're dissatisfied with your country, you let it be known through protest, 
the home of the brave should encourage this. So he will no longer be standing for the national anthem. He's not even coming out for it. This is a, a person with that is melanemic. Is this going to make a difference, Dr. Carr? Is, is it going to make a difference? What did the, um, so he was suspended by the Giants, right? His employer? Was he? No. Oh, he wasn't. Was right? he? I, no. Wait a minute, no. Did I miss the time? Did I read the times in the fight. I didn't see the widespread condemnation on the op-ed pages. Did he lose his job? Did he lose no, his job? No, it sounds like uh, everything I've read. I mean, I saw a few nuts in it, but it seems like he's getting widely praised. Yeah, yeah. Wow, boy, whiteness is a hell of a protector, ain't it? Wow, thoughtful comment, and now it's like, yay! I did see uh, the other cap got a tryout with the Las Vegas, Las Vegas Raiders, is it or something? Yeah, maybe they'll yeah. sign him. Um, again, who are we to other people? The social structure. Connor Kaepernick having been neutered can now be brought back in kind of like in a humble way and uh they're thereby uh taking a, a a jackhammer to any principled stand he had had meanwhile Gabe Kapler uh becomes Colin Kaepernick <laughs> in other words we praise the white man hey I'm I'm happy uh stay focused we had to stay focused in other words that don't mean nothing you know here here's here's the uh is the, I think for me anyway, Prof, what you just read is correct, is is important, and you get no credit for it. No, you don't get any credit for that virtual signaling. Why? Because after the anthem is over, you're still going to come out and you're going to play. Kapler, of course, in the Giants, uh, if you remember, maybe a couple of months ago. Um, no, wait, this is May. So it couldn't have been two months ago. It was right around the time that, that the season opened. Remember, uh, the Giants were the first baseball team to have a female coach. She went to the first base uh, after they threw the brother out. I'm, I'm very intentional about where I put my my attention. So I yeah, no, no. Only reason I'm raising it is because we, we talked about it, it in like 30 seconds when we were sitting here uh, one Saturday. Because the irony was all this coverage because Gabe Kaplan has expanded his baseball coaching staff to have like 19 coaches. Many of them are non-white. He's got the Spanish-speaking coaches. He's got the brothers. He's got this white woman who is a coach. And on one night, when the brother thought that the umpire said something that was kind of racially tinged, got in an argument, he got ejected. He was the first base coach. And then the white woman ran to first base and became and went on the field. And all the social structure media covered was first woman to uh, be in Major League Baseball game as a coach. And I was like, yeah, but they just threw the brother out. Are y'all complete? Because that, that wasn't important to them. I'm saying Gabe Kaplan, in other words, is marked as a quote unquote progressive. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. I wonder how many people, and I, I don't know, again, it's baseball, but I also know, obviously, you being an astute intellectual and a journalist and someone who was always paying attention to these trends. Do you remember, and this is a while ago, remember when the Afro-Puerto Rican uh, Carlos Delgado, he was playing for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. He used to play for the Mets. Delgado was first base for the Mets, but he was playing for the Blue Jays at the time. And this is when the United States government was bomb, doing those bombing tests in Vieques, in Puerto Rico. And so in the United, in, in Canada, it's not a big deal. But when they came to the United States and played the national anthem, Carlos Delgado refused to come out because he's Puerto Rican. He said, y'all bombing. My and they gave him holy hell. 
They're literally bombing Vieques. I mean, you had activists going down there and Puerto Rican people saying, we're going to go out on the atoll to stop y'all from bombing. Delgado wouldn't stand for the anthem. And they get, and of course, that was after, of course, our brother Chris Jackson, who changed his name, Abul, Abdul Raouf, who's played with Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This during the, during the Iraq war. I'm not coming. I'm going to pray. I'm not even going to disrespect. I'm just going to pray. So, Gabe Kaplan, more power to you, man. And it don't matter. And stay focused. Why? Because virtue signaling from the social structure, even with, with good intent. I, 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 I mean, you, you, Delgado's 2004, um, Mahmoud uh, Abdul Raouf, uh, blacklisted, um, blacklisted basketball, right? Um, for, for doing that. Uh, Kaepernick, blacklisted, whitelisted, excuse me, whitelisted, change yeah. language, change language, change yeah. language. But when a white person, a melanemic person, puts their foot down and they can't take anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I'm asking, I'm asking a, a, a dual question. Do you think the social structure now will pay attention because this was the coach of the year of 2021? Oh, oh absolutely they will. So, so now is it absolutely. now will they show up and and do something about guns and you know, but it's really I, I, think, not I, I think they might. I think they might. You know, I hadn't thought about this, prof. I hadn't thought about this because let's let's name another brother who I think I mean, you know, we're all human, so obviously none of us should be engaged in hero worship as if we're somehow divine. But there is a brother, a long distance runner in Major League Baseball, who, you know, I think a lot of us have a lot of respect for because of his politics, because of his appreciation of genealogy and his and as a black man, he's always standing correct. And that, of course, is Johnny B. Baker, uh, who we all know as Dusty Baker, who is the manager of the Houston Astros, who the Washington Nationals let go, which is why I've never been back to a Washington Nationals game. Y'all go to hell. But at any rate, remember, Baker was the manager of the Giants. Every team Dusty Baker has gone to, he has improved. That was including Samson Jeff. The reason I bring it up is because Baker has never shied in being political. But I wonder now, because see, Dusty Baker is the manager of the Houston Astros. He should never have been without a job. But there were many years when Baker, one of the, in fact, he just moved into the top 10 of all-time winning managers in Major League Baseball. There were years when Dusty Baker couldn't even get an interview, much less a hire. And he is in Houston. Now, I'm quite sure that Johnny B. Baker would love nothing more than to say what Gabe Kaplan said. But I'm wondering now if in Houston, Dusty Baker could have said what Gabe Kaplan, who manages the team Dusty Baker, managed and took to the World Series. I wonder if Dusty Baker could say what Gabe Kaplan just said, because Dusty Baker and Gabe Kaplan put them side by side. Dusty Baker is the one who always brings up. Dusty Baker knew Jackie Robinson. Dusty Baker apprenticed with Henry Aaron. Dusty Baker always talking about politics. Dusty Baker, I wonder if Dusty could do that. And he should, Dusty Baker should, he should retire when he get ready. He shouldn't have to hold his breath year after year to see if he gonna keep his job. But I wonder if he could do that. I wonder if going through his mind now, he's saying, <laughs> I would love to do that, but they will let me go in Houston. And I won't break the rest of these records. He's going to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's guaranteed. He punched his ticket when he broke the managerial record, broke it to the top 10 a couple of weeks ago in terms of all-time winning. But I'm wondering now, Prof, do you think Dusty Baker could say what Gabe Kaplan said, even in this just little universe? We already know. We can't do what they do. And it's, you know, but that's the hypocrisy that we have to watch all of the time. You know, you sit there in, in your office. You know, you sit there in your in your classroom, and if you're a doctor or a nurse, you sit, you see people get away with things that you know you damn well can't. My God, students, you know you can't. 
right? So, I mean, it's not even, you know, that's rhetorical. That's rhetorical, you know. I mean, but, but what is that? He he could, I mean, he could, but, you know, there's a backlash, right? There's a backlash. And then we're always, you know, uh, labeled as complaining, you know, like. Mm -hmm. Well, well, unless everybody did it. Right. Then a Kaplan did it. What if, and see that, remember. Then when that lady whispered in your ear. Yeah. Oh my God! I've been saying this because we've only seen this in the last ten years. On, One time when that college football team decided that if y'all don't fire that president, we're not playing. The University of Missouri, and, and that was something that they worked very hard, as you know better than I do. Big time college football, keep the athletes away from the student body. I saw that at Ohio State. First and the minute we all came together, it's when the concessions started being. But when those young people, and what was it, Concerned Student 1934, I think that was the movement. Anyway, I'm, I'd have to look. That was the year Clarence Gaines was admitted to the University of Missouri uh, Law School. But when those students went out on strike, remember there was a professor there who stood with them and they got rid of her. She was at, but when those ball players said, Oh, no, the chancellor had to resign of the University of Missouri system. That's exactly right, Prof. That's exactly right. And I remember talking about it because I'm like, what would happen if everybody, like, so, okay, y'all fired Kaepernick, but you can't have a league without all of us. If no. we all, and I, and I remember this even with, I mean, we go, I go back in basketball with Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan. There was a, uh, a, a collective bargaining um, year that they could have, Thrown their weight, they right. they were good money wise. You know, it took this generation of of ballers to say mm, no, and then the NBA has to capitulate. But they're always going to have to capitulate when we stand together. So if all if, mm. if, if just one, and I was like, it wouldn't even take one because that didn't even take one one day. They couldn't lose that one day. They couldn't lose that one game. That's right. It, it took one game of a threat that they were going to sit out. For them to so I'm like, what would happen in the NFL if one team decided? I mean, you wouldn't even need all of the teams. I'm just like, all the protests need to be very pointed. Like, we could absolutely cripple because they would have to capitulate. If we all focused on one bank, Wells Fargo, we're not banking there, all of us, and we're going to protest them publicly, all of us. Mm -hmm. All the other banks would be like, mm, I don't want to be a part of that. Let me, um, what we got to do to not have that happen to us. So I just feel like, you know, and if we all voted, like, all of us. What Gary Chambers said. But all I mean, but, but it's okay, but I think in part because there are many different pathways. We know that. I mean, we know that the United States of America is unsustainable. But we know that for two reasons. One, because there's no country in the world that exists today that existed at the beginning of the nation-state concept. Not in the same way, but we also know the United States is not sustainable because it's a settler colony that has a political framework that is anchored in maintaining white rule. Now, the criminals, the um, the criminals against humanity, committed crimes against humanity that came here, the so-called founding fathers, certainly would not have anticipated the size of this country, perhaps. And they wouldn't have anticipated that one day white people would be a minority in that country. But the electoral college system and the representative federal representative system was a fail safe that they in their wisdom and genius, and I'm using that language very intentionally for those of you who still believe in this foolishness, 
actually set up a framework to perpetuate minority rule. But what they couldn't probably anticipate after that, and this is where W.E.B. Du Bois, in the end of his first book, which was his doctoral dissertation at, at Harvard, The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States, he says at the end of the book, what are the lessons from the slave trade? He says the lesson is that the, the right time to correct a moral wrong is when you recognize it as a moral wrong. He said no one would have looked on with more horror at the United States Civil War than those who created the framework in the 1780s. But see, when you create a framework that allows you to maintain control regardless of the will of the people who are subject to that framework, you are you have put into the framework the way that it will be destroyed. And so, in fact, let me think, I think, and you might have to look this up while I'm in, I think we're right in the in the time period, maybe it was May, was it May or in 1854 when the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed in the federal legislature, which allowed for the expansion of enslavement into Northern territories. Um, this, of course, came in the wake of the Compromise of 1850, the so-called Great Compromise, which established the 3630 parallel going across the continental United States. Above this, you can't come in as an enslaved state. Below this, you can't come in. Oh, May 30th. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. So, okay, we're in. Okay. My memory is, is still kind of operating on a couple of cylinders. And I thank Narrative and Nubia for that because, again, we know this as teachers. The more you're engaged in conversation and thinking about things, the fresher they are in your mind. So, yeah, the Kansas Nebraska Act. And of course, those of you who are not yet in narrative, y'all better come in because we did a, like a three part thing on John Brown. Because remember, they called him old Potawatomi Brown because he went out there with his sons. This is what they call bleeding Kansas. Why? Because now these white boys going to rush out there. And if you can get enough people in that territory who support slavery and they vote, you can bring slavery in. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act nullified in some ways the Compromise of 1850, which also included the Fugitive Slave Act. And we saw that what happened, the United States of America, as they knew it in 1850, didn't survive the decade. Because between 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Act said, I don't give a damn where you are in the United States, we will take your black ass and chain you in the bottom of a boat and throw you into the uh, into the plantation south. Remember those of us who are in Blake, reading the Blake, we read part one on last Monday, part two this coming Monday. Remember our conversation Monday night, Prof, where we were talking about when, um, when Henry, the protagonist in Blake, when Henry Holland in part one, Henry Blake in part two, the same guy out that plantation in Mississippi, they sell his wife into enslavement. He comes back because the master then sent him to uh, to Louisiana to race horses. He comes back, uh, his mother and father-in-law who were praying to God and they saying, God will help protect us. God will help us. Dr. Smith and y'all, y'all knock that out the park, by the way. I hope you come back in a second and talk about what y'all were talking about this week because I watched that and I was like, damn, this is exactly what, what Henry Blake was saying. But at any rate, remember when he is in Louisiana and he's on this boat, this is an African who has escaped enslavement, who is plotting a, an international rebellion. That's what Blake is at the heart of, of Blake, this international rebellion, this vision, this grand vision Mark Delaney has. And he runs into this cat who had been free. But this is after 1850. This is after the Fugitive Slave Act, which means I don't care where you are in the country. If they put their hands on you, they will take your black ass and put you somewhere in slavery. Ask Solomon Northrop, so-called 12 years a slave. He was in New York. They came, they snatched him. Ask Henry Highland Garnett, who saw it happen to his family as a, as a teenager. So we talked about him when we talked about Alexander Crummel. But again, 
in the novel Blake, remember the protagonist Henry is in traveling through the South, which by the way, Martin Delaney actually did in the 1830s. And you find he finds it into the novel Blake, the most important novel by a black novelist in the United States of America of the 19th century, bar none, and one of the most important novels written by a black person in the world over the last 200 years. Uh, May the 6th, 1812 was when Martin Delaney was born. Huh, it's the 200th anniversary of his birth earlier this month. But at any rate, the point is he, he encounters this brother who had been, he's chained. He's on this ship because he has been captured past 1850. I don't care what kind of papers you got. I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn if you're a free black man in New York State or free Chicano man standing outside of elementary school while you punk ass law enforcement cats stop him from going in there to stop this guy who's killing the babies. I'm the law. I get to do whatever the hell I want. So at any rate, Delaney or Delaney, Henry Holland, really Delaney, Henry Holland confronts his brother who's in chains on this ship. And he says, are you trying to escape? Just a free dude who has been captured because of the future slave act, 1850. He says, well, the guy, he watches me all the time. So Henry says, is there no nighttime? <laughs> he said, yeah, but I'm afraid if I try to move, then he'll hear the chains and wake up. Blake is like, let me get this straight. You about to go into slavery for the rest of your life, and you worried about waking this guy up in the middle of the night if you can if you try to escape. He's what can happen to you that's worse than what's going on right now. In other words, this whole idea of chaining and this whole idea that you must strike the blow if you want to be free. The whole thing, Henry Blake, when he confronts his in-laws after they've sold their daughter, his wife. And he says, I'm, you know, for religion too. But then I realized that that's not going to be enough. We got to act. And they keep, and of course, he eventually gets them all out through the Underground Railroad to Canada. But the pulsing thesis through that, it's driven this novel that was serialized in the Weekly Anglo-African and the African-American uh, newspaper that Hamilton started in the 1850s. The whole thesis running through that, he, Martin Delaney is writing this in response in part to the Fugitive Slave Act and the Compromise of 1850, which established the Fugitive Slave Act, the so-called Missouri Compromise. 18, he had 1820, he had 1787, 1820, then 1850. After 1850, for four years, you've got an uneasy tension because they're trying to expand slavery going already across the continent. Shout out to Texas, the Lone Star State, where they want to start a whole damn slave-owning country, you punks. But at any rate, bring this bring this to a close we continue and you know fold this into what we're talking about generally today on memorial day weekend believe it or not all this is going to come together very nicely i think the ancestors always make sure that it does by 18 1854 these people who want slavery oh man they hot for it remember they had a presidential election remember in blake the opening of chapter one of blake begins uh the project, one of those exciting occasions during a contest for the presidency of the United States. This is when the boys from Baltimore are meeting with the Southerners because they're going to keep the slave trade going. We talked about all this on Monday night, y'all. If y'all not in, 
narrative, I tell you, it's really, you, you should join because we really are having, and we know more and more and more people are coming week after week. It's really quite something. But um, I raised what I just raised in terms of chapter one, because he's talking about the presidential election of 1852, which was won by Franklin Pierce, who was the Democrat. And the guy who ran against him, Winfield Scott, was the Whig party. But there were five other parties that contested the presidential election of 1852. Those of you who say we shouldn't be Democrats or Republicans, we should start our own party and get electoral politics. Okay, been there, done that. But the point is this, and that, of course, was before enslavement. But the point I'm trying to raise is the Free Soil Party, they, of course, they're saying we shouldn't have slavery anywhere. There was another party in the 1850s. This is a party called the Know-Nothings talked about the know-nothings. The know-nothings were a political party that gave cover to the pro-slavery white people who lived in the North. Who like, yeah, I like slavery, but I'm in the North, so you know, I can't really, but we need a party to support our interests. Well, by the mid of the 1850s, with the Missouri Compromise, which allows people, basically a, a gloss on states' rights. If you can get enough people into this territory in Kansas, and they want slavery, slavery will be the law. States' rights, states' rights. Follow me now, because we're going to bring this forward to 2022 in about 60 seconds. Driven by this popular sovereignty and states' rights, this kind of thing, uh, 1854, the compromise with slavery has intensified. It's coming down. It's coming down. It's coming down. The Whig Party collapses after 1852. A new entity emerges, the grand old party, the Republican Party. They are against slavery. No, they're not against slavery. Some of them are, but they're not against slavery. What are they for? They're for business. See, all this is bad for business. This is what you're talking about, Prop. If we boycott, if we do this, if Gabe Kaplan gets up and then all the managers stop and then the players decide they're not going to play, this is a problem. Now we got a problem with business. Well, the 1850s saw the emergence of a party, a political party that represented the interests of business. Why? Because they're going to crisscross the country with railroads. They're eventually going to get the Supreme Court to argue with an amendment that is passed after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment. The corporations are people, my friend, and I have a right not to have my business interests uh, impinged on. I'm going to run it through the First Amendment, the 14th. But anyway, I'm saying that that party that emerged, the Republican Party, becomes the anti-slavery party because all those elements that want to end slavery now have a political vehicle that they can express their interests and their interests don't interfere with the interests of business. But I'm saying that even that isn't enough because back east, the grand architect of the filibuster in the United States Senate that who can stop people from trying to stop slavery, John C. Calhoun, who we've talked about before. These cats realize that this ain't going to be enough. This thing is not going to be settled at the ballot. It's going to be the bullet. So guess what? Fort Sumter, the first shots are fired. And 600 and something thousand people dead later. And the smoke clear. Slavery is over. The moral of the story, which Martin Delaney is tracing in his 1859, actually, he started the novel in 1859. He published it in the papers. Then he took a break. Why? Because he went to Africa. Why? Because he said, we need to get the hell out of here. Let me go negotiate with these Africans. And they strike a deal. You can just come here. But then the Civil War jumps off. His son, Toussaint, him and Catherine, uh, his wife, they named most of their children for African 
uh, heroes. He had a child. He had a child named Ramses. Had a child named Cleopatra. And they uh, most of them are buried in Xenia, Ohio. Larry Crow goes there every Memorial Day. He's gonna join us Monday night, and we're gonna have this conversation on Delaney. But my point is, Delaney is convinced to come back into the United States and join the United States Army. Meets with Lincoln. Lincoln appoints him a major. He's the first black. Uh, commanding officer in the field in the history of the United States military and he fights his way out of enslavement along with these other almost 100, 100 and actually 189,000 men of African descent, 10,000 in the Union Navy, 179 in the Army, women of African descent like Harriet Araminta Ross Tubman, who although never formally appointed as a, an officer or a soldier in the Army still is by record, of course, the military records say the first woman to direct troops in battle when she shows them what to burn and how to go through, whether it be the Eastern Shore of Maryland or Combahee River, or all those other places. My point is this. You have to fight your way out. It becomes the bullet because y'all was playing with the ballot. And so that 1850s decade gives us a prelude to 2020s. Wow. See, the United States is unsustainable. Unlike the 1850s, they have now gone from sea to shining sea from Canada incorporating uh, Texas to Mexico. Unlike the 1850s, white people getting ready to be a minority. Like the 1850s, there are whole states where whites will always be the majority, at least for the foreseeable future. And of course, by the, and unlike the 1850s, they have now gone through the Native American territory. Remember, during the Civil War, 1862, Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation and the death warrant for Little Crow and them in what is now Minnesota, the Lakota or the Sioux, read the book 38 Nooses, the largest execution, federal execution in one stroke of a pen. And people say they give Lincoln credit because he, he stopped more from being executed. Yeah, but he signed a death warrant on 38. These were indigenous people. Unlike the 1850s, here we are in 2022. And guess what? Many of those people's descendants were killed. Many of those people's descendants still alive. And collectively, the non-whites will soon outnumber the whites in this country. But the Electoral College allows for a Rhodesia style, for a South African pre-end of apartheid style government. But guess what? That is unsustainable. It was unsustainable when white people were the majority. It's called the U.S. Civil War. It was unsustainable when you realize you better make some concessions in the, in the international arena or the whole thing's going to come apart. That was the civil rights movement. And here we are 50 years plus later, and it's unsustainable now, except what? The numbers didn't change now, baby. Oh, the numbers have changed. And guess what? Since you won't protect our babies, we'll protect them. Because what we with that video we saw, in that outside that school, and those parents standing there, one of them brothers was like, you know, I'm going to handle it. Well, guess what? You don't get another bite of that apple. How long, Professor Hunter, do you think it will be before when some white uh, white boy, Latino, whoever, or in the case of California, somebody who is Asian, who don't like other Asians, how long do you think it is before somebody run up in there and the next time a child called the police, nobody come, before them parents decide, okay, we got open carry here. We're going to fight you, too, because I don't want to live. You saw the man died. His wife got yeah. killed. Oh, my God. The man died of a broken heart, prof. We can't take that. He died of a broken heart, and his wife died and had a baby in her arms. That baby died. She she gave her life trying to protect that child. How many more times? <laughs> You're right. I'm not going to get flagged. I'm no, just saying. I mean, I mean, you know, I don't give a damn about you, too, you know. Mm. We we oh, we have a conduit, and people are you know as no, the people, no, I mean, you know, y'all yes. know, 
Uh, I was willing to take everything off of YouTube and just be a Nubia. Yeah, that's and right. So we had a conversation. I'm just going to be transparent. We yeah, of course, of course. About that because, you know, and and this is where, you know, we can disagree, love each other. and no come That's what that's supposed to look like, no right? Question. No question. I wanted to take everything off YouTube because where, where I feel we need to go, I right. don't, don't want to have to deal with the trolls and the people who aren't committed. We need people who are committed to this work. But right. your point, your point was everybody can't be in here. And so you want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity. Yeah. So like, you know, no question. everybody should have an opportunity to, to engage and enjoy. But you know, time not only enjoy, but to have a moment, to have a moment where that moment of clarity. Because believe me, we both work in higher education. You work at a you work at a working class university, you forged an ability to move in that space. I work at an HBCU that is increasingly like H, like HBCUs are becoming in some ways farm teams for these other institutes. Now the big thing is, oh, you know, you can go to an HBCU for your undergraduate and go to the white school for you. In other words, so you basically turn yourself into a minor leagues for white universities. Well, why am I still there? Because, you know, and even as they continue to try to take things, well, they think they're taking things from me. What you're really doing is freeing me up. Thank you. But at any rate, I say to myself, I'm here because in that room of 200 kids, in that room of 250, in that room of 100, in that room of 15, there are three who came here for the thing they need to hear. And there's another three or four who didn't even think they needed to hear it. And then the next thing you know, that is the thing. The New York Times did an article. I just saw it. Hold on. Give me about 10 seconds. I might have it right here because uh, the New York Times. Yeah, here it is. Look. This was in Thursday's paper. Mainstream embraces HBCUs. My man Will Packer is quoted in here. These, these black institutions have a spirit all their own. Isn't it lovely? Isn't she lovely? The mainstream and the HBCU. They got all, they talking about a different world. They got all the Ralph Lauren. All thing we talk about, guess what? The HBCU ain't gonna save us. That window closed with the end of desegregation. And the reason that we're there is to help so the people just like we're here and we put this on YouTube in part because there are people who either can't afford it. There are people who can't afford it, who had to decide where they're going to do it. They are coming more and more. This being shown. There are people watching us, Prop, as we both know, who uh, would never say they're watching us. And guess what? It's OK, because guess where it's showing up? Y'all getting a little, little, a little courage. See, y'all now talking a little courage. The influence. And meanwhile, the thing we need. We continue to build. Right. So that's why I brought it up only to say it's important to be in community with people that that push back on you. That you oh, can, no question. That you can push back and dialogue. Get that's to right. a place where, okay, you know what? You're right. You know? So I'm like, you're right. You're right. You're right. And, and, so and I'm grateful to you because you have that reach. So for me, okay. But again, I can't tell you these cats. I mean, I was accosted for I was like, I'm like, what the hell? And the love, but the love is there, and you never know where the people are. They are over. And that's why you know, um, that's super important that that you know, you challenged me. I, I processed it. Just, like, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. I I feel like, you know, in many ways, you know, in the wilderness. Yeah, uh, it took what forty years for that generation to die out. To you know, it's like to to build something new. There's a scripture about old wine and new wine, new wine skin, old wine. Uh, yes, 
you know, it's just like, this is some new wine. It's the new normal. Somebody's like, I'm not normal. No, normal is what's accepted and we're accepted. So we're going to be accepted because we said so. And so I'm like, you know, how do you build with, there's still a lot of old wine skin out there, you know, who may not knock the dust off, you know, may not ever get ready. And I'm just like, we are ready to build. So I just, you know, but and you, you wear, you wearing it. I'm wearing it. Yeah, but you know point you you talked about the HBCUs and mainstream. What the hell is mainstream now? We're mainstream. When they say mainstream, they mean white people. Yeah, they mean white people, right? I mean, it's it's all social structure. That, that and that's the whole point. And and by the way, shout out to the New York Times. Not for now, people. That, I'm sure people have been approaching you saying, "Did you see what the New York Times wrote about Haiti and how much France?" Oh, I'm saying y'all don't get credit for stuff we know, and y'all don't get. In other words. They didn't, like, give credit, they didn't give credit to the people that they took the information from. Of course not. Of course not. Why? Because this isn't about telling the truth. This is about trying to remain relevant. Do you know how we know that we are influencing our, our people and that we're moving forward? All of us who are ignoring that, we know because they are changing. Colin Kaepernick is getting a tryout because people were listening. And deciding, let's just walk away. Or people, well, that's not true. People still watch the NFL. No, 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 no. The reason he's getting a tryout is because it's in their interest to do it. It's the same rationale that led to the creation of the Republican Party in the 1850s. It ain't that we wouldn't love to have slavery from now on, but it's unsustainable. Understand, Gabe Kapler is able to speak his conscience because of Colin Kaepernick and more importantly, because two years ago this summer, Y'all was in the streets. In other words, they got that genie back in the bag. And how do we know we got they got it back in the bag? Here is uh, today's Financial Times. This is the Financial Times. The war on woke capitalism. <laughs> As chief executives' voices become louder, a small group of effective corporate elites get to decide what's right for society at large. So we know what, what, what happened since the last time we were together in this week. Here it is. I'll just read the first paragraph. This week's World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, the Davos Forum was last week, should have been a triumphant one for its host, Klaus Schwab, because he is an advocate of what he calls stakeholder capitalism. They want to talk about global warming. They want to talk about uh, sustainable development, all this kind of thing. But guess what? Let me just read this. Increasingly, they fretted the tenets of stakeholder capitalism and the environmental social governance themed investing trend that has risen with it are under attack from populist politicians, finance industry, contrarians and a different brand of activists from the ones Schwab imagined. So these corporations realize it's better for business. That HBCU article talks about Ralph Lauren and all that old mess that they did with Morehouse and Spellman. They're not selling, I'm sorry, they're not selling, they're buying. They're buying a brand. They're renting a brand. HBCUs are now for sale. Now it's a elegant stroll. You wouldn't call it hose. You might call it you know, high-end escorts. I mean, but anyway, the point is this. Capitalism realizes it's profitable to bring it. Now, in Davos, the corporations are like, we can make more money, but guess what they're going to have to deal with? Going back to the New York Times very quickly, just very quickly. Oh, come on, son. I thought I had, I pulled this. Uh, yeah, this is yesterday's paper. 
in the United States. GOP weaponizes state houses against green corporate goals. Watch this. In West Virginia, the state treasurer has pulled money from BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, because the Wall Street firm has flagged climate change as an economic risk. In Texas, a new law bars the state's retirement and investment funds from doing business with companies that the state comptroller says are boycotting fossil fuels. Conservative lawmakers in 15 other states are promoting similar legislation. What's the connection? Like the 1850s when it was slavery? In the 2020s now, the business interests are trying to figure out what will allow them to maintain control and extend it. And guess who's pushing back? Them hillbillies. <laughs> Unlike the 1850s, however, when the thing was still being formed as a criminal enterprise and you could localize that dissent and say the South, the South is against, uh, South is pro-slavery. So therefore, we're going to come in and we're going to stop that and we're going to fight for freedom. No, what you're fighting for is expanding business because as soon as the war was over, you made up with the South. You gave Black people 10 years to make sure that the white South was subdued. And after it was over, y'all called a truce with them white boys for a century. And what you said was, y'all do whatever the hell y'all want with them blacks now because we done shook hands on the new South, the economy. We got the railroads down there. We got the uh, stock in New York, but you running the thing in Atlanta. Okay, no problem. We are running the shipping lanes. Uh, I got the, I, I own the shipping lane in New York, but you're running it through Tennessee. That would be Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore, who ain't never been in no ships. Anyway, the point is this. Once that was, and then black people were like, Okay, but we get to vote, right? Yeah, put everything you want. Public education for everybody. Let's get some good governance in there. All right, then the 1870s come. There's a disputed election. Three states, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and, and, and there's a divided Congress, and they make the truce. Give us the presidency, and in exchange, take the rest of them troops out the South, and you do whatever the hell you want. And guess what we had to do? We had to fight for ourselves. So y'all stop telling these babies in these schools that this was the triumph of American democracy in the 1960s. No, it was the Africanization temporarily of American democracy and the business interests realized it was in their best interest, including the so-called quote unquote liberal Republicans. You can't use liberal and conservative when you're talking about politicians. They're all employees now, certainly now. And so in, in, the, in, in 2020, 2022, what we are faced with is another impending crisis the global crisis of capitalism trying to maintain control the global struggle of people trying to fight out of that control and the local example of the united states you got states rights white nationalists wholly owned subsidiaries of corporate corporate interests all congealed together in a in a federal framework that gives them the power to do so literally fighting against clean air because it's not in the interest of the business and how do they get in office to, to make sure they block all of it because they turn around to the poor whites and say i know you ain't got no money but you white and they march to the polls and you don't and they keep in power people who are going to literally wipe humanity off the planet and as their last breath, as they die, going to be like, yeah, but I got a dollar and you don't. And then everybody <laughs> did. You know what I'm saying? This is what we're talking about, y'all. This is what we're talking about. You you call them pretty women. Um, So the schools. The I schools, say No, no, no. It's fine. They're pretty no, women. Because it ain't but a handful who are auditioning so far. The point of entry. In other words, there are short, there's a short list of HBCUs that the black kind of elite upper class are approved 
for their children to go to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The rest of these schools, like the one I went to, Tennessee State, now we ain't in the, you know, we're still kind of field Negro, but those schools aspire to the status of those other schools. So, and, and again, so let me let me ask you this. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we had 19 children killed in a school mm-hmm. uh, that parents and others weren't allowed for an hour, for an hour to go get their babies. An hour, y'all? People were handcuffed. I saw police pushing. I saw them trying to tase people who wanted like to go in and save their children from a person that had an hour to wreck carnage on those little lives and the adults. Thanks, thanks to a laws in Texas that you buy a damn gun at teenage. That's right. And how was he able to afford that when he's living with his grandmother and he's working minimum wage? It's a $2,000 gun. It's $2,000. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. And 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 that and that shovel mouth bastard at his press conference saying, "Well, Chicago, yeah." As Roland Martin reminded a bunch of people last week, "Yeah, there are strong gun laws in Chicago, but guess what? Not in Indiana. Again, federalism. They buy the guns, not in Illinois." Well, Chicago's not even the most dangerous and most gun-ridden state in the country. No. Stop using Chicago. Chicago, when they say it, it's a dog whistle, it's racism. Of course it is. Of course it is. And that's show mouth. He's gonna find out. It's not the most dangerous in not even in the top ten. Stop. That's right. So so let me ask you about school now, because Mm. you know, it's talking about arming teachers. there were armed police officers there, so they're supposed to be trained and they wouldn't go in. So we and they didn't go in in Parkland, Florida either. They ran and hid behind barricades while that? out of that high school in Florida. So my wow. question is, for those of us who have children, you send your child to school. This was uh, Assembly Day. I oh remember Assembly Day, third, fourth, fifth grade. You get your uh, perfect attendance certificate, best in math, best in science, best, you know, you, you, it was a proud moment. My mama still has those certificates. No question. We all, all, all of our parents do. And you saw that you saw with the child, the children holding up a certificate, Rob. These are honor roll students, right? That were being. And what was that? What was that? I, I maybe you, I know you probably saw it. You probably saw it. Where the, the, the high school graduates, they, they went down the corridor and the young and the little kids were there with their hands up and they were giving them high fives on the way to the. All, all of that, which, you know, fond memories. The one kid, two kids that survived, one by smearing the blood of a dead schoolmate on, Come on. to and pretend to be dead. Several of the students, pretend, they're going to carry those memories with them for the rest of their lives. But they were sent Whatever. to school. And, and one mother was like, it's my fault because I, I, I didn't go back to get him, you know, but he's, you know, it's the last day of school. So you're going to leave your kid and she's going to carry that with her. School, safe, school. safe, all of that. And everybody that lives in a city where your child has to go through metal detectors. Come on. I lived through that in my adopted hometown, Philly. I'll never forget Philadelphia Freedom Schools. We had a couple of hundred young people in there and they were talking to policymakers, Philadelphia City Council. Don't go anywhere. I'm just, this is a real quick story. We, these are mostly students of African descent, Spanish and English speaking. They had a lot of Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, along with the African people who come up from the South and the Philadelphians, this kind of thing. There were a lot of Asian students in Philadelphia Freedom Schools at the time, particularly South Philly, also, you know, Chinese, Laotian, Korean, these students, um, and a smattering of white students. The subject of school safety came up. I'll never forget this. We're sitting there with city council, all these young people. We had Campus Temple University, auditorium full of these young people. We reading all summer. We, I think maybe in the summer we read the debt. But at any rate, at the height of this, this little Chinese girl, teenager, 
girls high school. She's your girls, girls high. She stood up and said, we don't have metal detectors. She said, I think we should have metal detectors. He said, why? He said, because my friends in this room, they're metal detectors at William Penn. They're metal detectors at Ben Franklin. They're metal detectors at West Philly and Overbrook. So there should be metal detectors at Girls High. What are you saying? <laughs> and then they all started cheering. I mean, the point is, why y'all got certain? There are schools in this. There are schools in this country where there ain't no metal detectors, and they're public schools. What What are you saying about those children? You punk police. I would rather teachers have guns than you. Why? Because this woman died. With a baby in her arms, trying. I trust her with a gun, trying to hurt her. Then you, you punk. Why? Because you are hiding in the room next with a child making a nine one one call. Why? Because it ain't your daughter. In that moment, you just told us there is no such thing as America. So y'all stop saying there is an America. There ain't no, no. There is no we. Why? Because there was a we. He'd have done his job. Now, of course, you shouldn't arm teachers. But guess what? The people you did arm don't look at those children like they're their children. This is the problem. Those teachers do. We're teachers, prof. These are not just our students. These are, you, these are we members of they, 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 we look at them like auntie and uncle. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you're a cop and you don't look at it like that, like that, you should, you're not going to turn in your badge because you join because you can shoot people, pat a roller. So we already know <laughs> why you are. It's, it's, it's not their job to go put their lives in, in danger. That's it's what somebody, not, it's not their job. That's not their job. They're not. That's, that's what the movies. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess it's too much propaganda, huh? I watch right, too much. Right. Of so, so two things that America, well, a bunch of things, but in this moment, what is a police? What's the role of the police? You know, mm -hmm. everybody talking about defunding, defunding. Well, this was a prime example of they they were there. They accosted the 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 Cretan before he went in. Keep talking. So, I right? think I know where it is. Please. Some asked Ted Cruz talking about uh, locking doors. Uh, fire code, idiot. Um. You know, the Ted Cruz, as Black Thought said, first thing to fall is cats with no chin. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see here. <laughs> Ain't nobody listening to uh, Cancun. So here we go. Go ahead. And so, and so, you know, we gotta look at what what is the what is the role of police, and then what is the role of school, and and how many parents are gonna now take their children out of school for fear, you know, because. Homeschool. Columbine all the way through, you know, something we talked about off mic, like what, what is education? Right. You know, it was designed so that parents could go to work, right? So you can drop your kid off someplace, get them just enough to be civil, but right. not enough to actually spark imagination. Then we started with this rote memorization, filling in little circles, no discourse, no, no chance for sparking imagination, which That's is the, right. the curiosity and imagination is the birthplace of all genius. That's right. So we're not doing that. We're 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 putting out drone zombies, basically, who can regurgitate stuff. But well, I mean, it, it's easy. To, well, the first one, the first uh, question is easy. We talked about that extensively, maybe even almost close to two years ago. I just pulled uh, Sally Haddon's book. That's the purpose of the police. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's slave patrols. Yeah, let me see your paper. Let me see your ID. Or better yet. I feared for my life, so I just blew your head off. I just jumped in, or I just got you on the ground and blasted you in the back. Slave patrols. That's the purpose of the police. Was a, there wasn't slavery everywhere in the country. No, you got to know the history of the policing. We talked about history of policing. Last summer, after uh, two summers ago, after Floyd George Floyd's murder in the wake of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. Remember, uh, the whole summer, so a lot of people made a lot of money explaining to companies, afraid of the history of policing. 
a lot of documentaries, a lot of specials, a lot of special reports, a lot of whole issues of magazines about, and there's only one history of policing. It is to police black bodies in the South, in this United States of America, and in the North, it is for the underclass. You know, in fact, uh, protect and defend um, the former general manager of WHUT right after the Floyd protests, as they began two years ago, they asked me to do a little spot that aired on WHUT, Howard University Television Station, on the history of policing. And I talked a little bit, only about maybe 60 seconds, 90 seconds, on the history of how the protect and serve uh, motto came with the Los Angeles Police Department. And it was a motto that um, was decided upon after a contest. People got to submit, you know, Protect and, and serve? Yeah. Protect and serve what? Protect and serve property. Protect and serve the interests of those who own the property. And everybody else, you know, as Benny Siegel said, Philly, get down or lay down. I mean, this is the bottom line. And so we know the purpose of police. And so, I mean, it's not even an issue in terms of education. We've been saying this, and I love that new concept. I mean, the Nubia, the new normal, that's exactly right. Um, I am reminded of, uh, who was it? Oh, I can't remember now. I just read that a couple of days ago. Someone was saying, um, oh, I remember now. Maybe it was Sadia Hartman, the scholar Sadia Hartman. Or maybe it was Dion Brand in writing in Canada. And I think I mentioned this last week. It was Dion Brand. I did mention it last week. But she said, I don't want to go back to the, the old normal. The old normal wasn't good for Black people. So, you know, so why would I go back to that? The new normal. In fact, um, for the first time, um, let me see, is this, uh, no, oh, I remember, the, uh, those of you who are in Brooklyn, Dance Africa is there this weekend, I wish I could come up there, for the first time since the pandemic hit, but no, um, Brian Jackson, Brian Jackson was the partner of, musical partner of the great Gil Scott Heron, and Brian Jackson, mm, I'm not gonna be able to find it, I thought I had pulled it, but uh, you know how I am. I'll keep walking around till I till I find it. If you give me about thirty more seconds, I should be able to run up on it. Oh, you know where it is? It's in the same piece as the HBCU. Yeah, that's what drew my attention to the HBCU thing. I wasn't. All right. Yeah, here it is. It was in the art section on Thursday. Mainstream embraces HBCUs. Whatever. The whole point is that yeah, because I'm like I embraced HBCUs before y'all knew where they were. All right, spotlight. Spotlight returns to a 1970s musician. After 35 years in the day job, the Gil Scott Heron collaborator, Brian Jackson, has a new album. So y'all know Gil Scott Heron. We know we talked about Gil Scott Heron extensively. And many of us know, of course, his collaborator, Brian Jackson. See, this is going to talk about HBCUs. Now, isn't that interesting? You got this here on Brian Jackson, right underneath it, a piece on HBCUs. And, of course, the people talking about HBCUs, you probably don't know writers whoever wrote this uh Alder birch i don't know um that gil scott heron went to lincoln university an hbcu where he met the last poets who were coming through an hbcu tour and brian jackson gil scott heron others they put together the formation that eventually became among other iterations the midnight band and while at lincoln university in fact gil scott heron wrote the first of two novels that he wrote and as a 19 year old 
in fact wrote the poem that became the song on the first album that they uh, created, Small Talk at 125th Street, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. That's an HBCU story. Uh, mainstream embraces HBCU. Yeah, but did you embrace Brian Jackson and Gil Scott Heron, who are the collaborative team? Because remember, Brian Jackson was Gil Scott Heron and the band's music directors. And they did a long, not you, Hugh Jackman. I'm sorry. I'm talking about a real artist. Uh, here we are. Yes. Uh, did a long article on there's brian jackson right there back after 35 years in a day job but well, what was brian jackson doing because him and gil scott heron fell out watch this after spending decades as an information technology specialist at new york city's administration for children's services he has found his way back to music and slowly but surely the world is finding out about him again no your world social structure many of us never forgot why because one of the albums they created Woo! It was the legendary cultural meaning making, the legendary connection of movement and memory, the album that we all listen to over and over again, particularly because of its signature tune. That album was Winter in America. That's Brian Jackson and Gil Scott Heron. In fact, let me just read this. He says, uh, Throughout the 1970s, Scott Heron and Jackson produced a stream of musical protest and critique that may be unmatched in the American canon. I love how the social structure always has to resolve it to its old silly self. Uh, put Jackson and Heron and the Midnight Band in conversation with Fela Kuti, in conversation with Celia Cruz, in conversation with the African cultural meaning makers. That is the genealogy. See, because if you put them in conversation with the social structure, then of course they look remarkable. But when you put them in conversation with the governance structure, you get to see their real complexity. Because see, only, for example, in putting Barack Obama's oratory in the social structure, can you say he's one of the most remarkable orators? When you put him in the governance structure, he would be the eighth preacher on a seven preacher last words of Jesus Easter sermon. Anyway, the point is this. He goes on and says, uh, together, they use words and music to ferret out hypocrisy and write a roadmap out of what they called winter in America, the post-civil rights movement chill that it set in by the mid-1970s. Don't know about that, because remember, we read, and thank you all again, by reading Tony K. Bambara, by rereading it for me, reading it and rereading it for many folks who were in that 12 or 1300 and meet on Monday nights and growing in Nubia, it sent me back. I pulled all my Tony K. You know, I, anyway, this is where I wanted to go with it, though. As he spoke, this is the interview, Jackson is giving Brian Jackson for this article as he spoke. And he just released This Is Brian Jackson. The album came out yesterday, the CD, the recording, rather. As he spoke, Jackson stood outside a house belonging to his wife's family, and he watched out the corner of his eye as their five year old twins played in the garden. After a lifetime waging battles against American racism and capitalism, in song and deed, Jackson said he'd had enough and planned to relocate full time to France. Quote, I've raised three other kids in that hateful, spiteful situation that we call America right now. End quote. He said, quote, if I if I just didn't have kids, I would probably stay in the States and fight it out. But I don't want to do that to anybody else who didn't have a stake in that decision. End quote. Talk about the babies. Another song. We've got to do something to save the children. Soon it will be their turn to try to save the world. That's Heron and Jackson. We've got to do something 
save the children. All right, Jackson, I'm out. Because see, these babies didn't have nothing to do with, they don't have a stake in this bullshit. And I have the ability, me and my wife, we got enough now. I'm retired. I'm going to go make my music. We're going to France. Now, I wish he was going to Dakar. Maybe he'll end up in Dakar, right? But the point is that just like they wrote in the 70s, it's winter, winter in America. <laughs> what did Gil say? And Brian Jackson, who inspired Gil, they did lyrics and music together. The Constitution, a noble piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A noble piece of paper. If y'all don't want to make it stand up, no problem. Countries come and go. Nations come and go. You think the United States is going to be here? You don't study history. Again, this is what we're doing. So in terms of education, will we see increases in homeschooling? We've already seen that for all kinds of ideological reasons. If your child is not going to be safe at school, and, and mind you now, because remember, what was the um, prof? You probably covered it. Was he 18? Just the other boy that the police stopped in the parking lot down the street from the place. Was he 18? Yes, 18. See? So you see how copycats go. And, and in fact, uh, 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 Tuesday's New York Times, Buffalo's black children are afraid. It could just happen to me. Though all those elders and, and others aren't in the ground yet. Ruvette Townsend leaned against a student's desk early last week, trying not to cry. Ms. Townsend, a staff member who tracks attendance at Leonardo da Vinci High School in Buffalo, looked at the rows of students seated in front of her. Some had their heads down, others were tense with anger, and many were shaking their heads. Quote, who would drive that far to kill people? End quote, Ms. Townsend, 60, recall one student asking, quote, didn't somebody see him coming? And then the article goes on. This is heartbreaking. Brian Jackson, his wife, going to get their children out of America. Are there problems in France? Damn right. I guess to tell you what, one of them didn't know what. Random ass open carry law state shooters and everywhere else busting up in grocery stores and schools, planning it, and then other people watching it on 4chan and Reddit, whatever, uh, subterranean media, or from the podium at the National Rifle Association, which met, continued to meet in Texas this week, extolling giving people guns so they can plan how to come in and do this and now they're taking notes from each other. So, you know, one of the reasons we have this space is so that without any attempt to curb ourselves, we can be in a space where we study, where we discuss, where we plan, and out of that work, we act. And out of that action, everything changes. You can't change it by continuing to appeal for your humanity. And that becomes the purpose of your life. And here we are on Memorial Day. I think it's important for us to pause, to reflect on, again, we're thinking about this. This is why, in fact, let me just say, this is why the Africana Studies framework is so important. This really is why the Africana Studies framework is so important. Because what that framework allows us to do is have a thing that centers us. I uh, spent um, some time uh, earlier, this past week has been a whirlwind, but I got the chance to spend about an hour. I was interviewing him um, with a brother who was very important uh, to me and to, uh, to, to all of us, really, the more we get to know his work. Uh, his name is Lucius Turner Outlaw Jr., uh, Lou Outlaw. Lou Outlaw, some people may know that name. If you don't, he is a trained academic philosopher. Um, he got his PhD in 1972, I think, writing about 
hermeneutics and black people what is the source of black what, what, what i would call ways of knowing what we have in our framework as ways of knowing he would say philosophy which i would say is a, is, a, is, a, is a is a variation on ways of knowing and i think he would too i mean in fact loose outlaws work like a lot of people's but his work is essential to 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 to, to any of the work we trying to do with this african states framework because i'm reading him many years ago when i first came to philly in fact he was at haverford at the time haverford college uh, he went to fisk undergrad uh left fisk went to boston university got a phd in philosophy at a time when there were very few black philosophers there still are in terms of aren't many in terms of academic philosophy he's of the generation with bernard boxel and cornell west and lewis gordon is kind of a next generation for them uh the black philosophers but at any rate academic philosophers but he wrote an article in 1987 called Africology, Normative Theory. And I won't get too deep into this. This is an academic thing. And maybe we talk about this another time. In fact, as this course, this African Studies course I'm planning out, mounts in narrative, we'll talk about more of this. But anyway, the long, the long story short of it is that he says, you know, we have to, if we're going to have a basis for thinking about ourselves, that's why that framework is so important. Um, he says we have a we have to have a basis for rationalizing and thinking in terms of uh, a complex set of orienting beliefs. How do we know what we know? How do we believe what we believe? Well, it requires dialogue, it requires debate, it requires discussion. What can get confusing is when people who come in with their own ideas and comments, who are coming from a social structure that sees all African people differently come in, well, this is what I think. Okay, yes, that's important, but not right now. Why? Because we got our own arguments to have. And what, what history has shown us is the minute you come in with your arguments, we start responding to them. We take energy away from our conversation. And our conversation has been the only thing that has kept us even close to being safe. He says, if we're going to build, Lou talks about this, if we're going to build practices, if we're going to build institutions that, you know, endure and that help us not only survive, but thrive, they've got to be built by us. We talked about it last week. Malcolm said, you know, you can't solve this for us. You can help, but we have to decide how you can help. You don't get to tell us how you can help corporations. You don't get to decide how to tell us politicians. You don't get to say, and that is what in the wake of the shootings in Buffalo, the shootings in California, now the shootings in Texas, all the social structure is having conversation about how do we, how do we, there ain't no we. There is no we. If all of those parents that showed up at the elementary school strapped, that changes the equation. Now, if there's going to be a shootout in front, now, mind you now, this is how World War I jumped off, Archduke of Ferdinand assassinated, this is how the Civil War jumps off. You know, in other words, as Malcolm said, you got a wick. A wick then will lead to the explosive ingredients. This country, this federal polity has always had the ingredients for an explosion. The wick will be the thing that set it off. It ain't going to be coordinated. If those parents had showed up at the elementary school strapped and them cops had shot them and they had been shooting back and forth, those babies dying might have been the wick that started the conflagration. This is Stephen Marsh, who you interviewed, and he couldn't answer all them questions you asked him on the next Civil War. He's in Canada watching this. See, what you he understands. What he doesn't see is what we see, and what you brought to the table in that interview with him, Prof, was the governance structure, and that's the thing the social structure can't see because we've never required them to see it because part of we spend so much time pleading but but this is memorial day weekend so i thought that we should you know kind of wind up today 
with Memorial Day. Now, we know Memorial Day. We talked about this. We've got a whole long conversation we had last year. Comes from Decoration Day. And I pulled, of course, since we started this. In fact, right around the time this book came out, A Day for Remembering, inspired by the true events of the first Memorial Day, Leah Henderson's book, illustrated by Floyd Cooper, who made transition last year, shortly after this book uh, came out, right around the time this book came out. This is the history, Charleston, South Carolina. Remember, we talked about that. And for those of you who are not yet in narrative, I really encourage you all, get this book, go to Black Bookstores. I was down in Sankofa. They had a bunch of copies of down there because people been ordering them. And I'm very happy because, again, two years ago, beginning now, this week, next week, week after, June, July, August, everybody buying books from Black Bookstores. Two years later, we done? Good? Okay, now, let me go back through what I was doing before. The black bookstores are still there. Y'all support, we got to support these black bookstores because this is a long distance running. And then for a moment, we had our focus on governance and other people fear that their country was getting ready to collapse, had their focus on supporting black institutions. Now that they've cherry picked, Ralph Lauren is like, damn, oh, wait a minute, hold on, let me recover, let me recover. Okay, what can I do to make all this money? What can I do to make all this money? Okay, I'm going to make a tribute line. That's it, tribute. Then some Negroes like, yeah, I'm like, fool. You had a three-month window to make your own damn company. Oh, <laughs> but you missed it. All right. uh, but then you never really did want to. Make... Anyway, my point is this. This book with this little boy who tells a story about he gets to how he gets to help the brothers and sisters who put together this as they're learning and they're beginning to learn the English language to be able to read and write and their children are telling them, uh, their parents are telling them stories of enslavement and stories of the fight for liberation and they march together as they moving. Where are they going? They're going to the old racetrack in Charleston. Why? Because they're going to take the bodies of the Union soldiers who gave their lives fighting in the war. They get a little boy the job of painting the fence post. Why? Because once they get this thing together, his mom is equipping him. Get out there and help your daddy. We're going to do this. Why? What y'all getting ready to do? Y'all getting ready to come together. They get their clothes, their best clothes. They they coming out of enslavement. Where did these Negroes get clothes? Oh, there's a story to that too. And they have rededicated the place and they have consecrated that place. May the 1st. 1865 martyrs of the race course this is the first decoration day which then becomes memorial day they try to trace it to mississippi and some white women in mississippi whatever the point is decoration day but that ain't where we going today because we told that story we talked about it a lot last year that's not where we're going professor hunter why because the ancestors i tell you man the ancestors are real I'm thinking about Jeremiah Wright and Freddie Haynes and all the people who are Nubians who come in. I'm thinking about all the people over the arc of our months together in Nubia, and it just continues to grow. I'm thinking about Monday night, last Monday and this Monday. Why? Because the reason we picked Blake or the Huts of America is because Martin Delaney was a Union commissioned officer in the Civil War. This Pan-Africanist. This man out of the governance structure. We talked about Delaney's biography. We picked it because we'll finish on Memorial Day. And we're going to now end with a Charleston story. Oh, the Charleston story. Charleston, South Carolina. The first decoration day. The roots of Memorial Day. Professor Hunter, do you think that there's a Martin Delaney story in there somewhere? Yes. Yes. But guess what? 
Martin Delaney is the point of entry. Why? <laughs> oh my goodness. Let's just read for a second from the June 1861 issue of the Atlantic. Yes, the Atlantic Monthly. Yeah, that new that magazine is still published. But let's just read from the June 8. This is June 1861. Thomas Wentworth Higginson writes this. On Saturday afternoon, May 26th, what's today, Professor Honey? Today is the 28th. The 28th, two days after, but it's Saturday, right? Saturday, yes. On Saturday, May 26th, 1822, how many years ago would that be? Hmm. Uh, 100. Plus? 200. 200 <laughs> years ago this weekend. 200 years ago this weekend. <laughs> A slave named Devani, D-E-V-A-N-Y. That's who Thomas Higginson calls him. The black people call him Peter. Slave named Devani, belonging to Colonel Prelude of Charleston, South Carolina, was sent to the market by his mistress, the colonel being absent in the country. After doing his errands, he strolled down upon the wharves. Jeremiah Wright is somewhere laughing right now. He in here right now laughing because he know this story. How many times has he told you? After during his errands, he strolled down the wharves in the enjoyment of that magnificent wealth of leisure, which usually characterizes the house servant of the South. When once beyond hail of the street door, he presently noticed a small vessel lying in the stream with a peculiar flag flying. And while looking at it, he was accosted by a slave named William, belonging to Mr. John Paul, who remarked to him, William talking to Peter, the guy we know as Peter. William tells Peter, I've often seen a flag with the number 76, but never one with the number 96 on it before. After some further conversation on this trifling point, he continued with earnestness. Do you know that something serious is about to take place? William clearly understands Peter don't get it. Giovanni, or Peter, disclaiming the knowledge of any graver impending crisis than the family dinner. Good house, Nick, bro. The other went on to inform him that many of the slaves were, quote, determined to right themselves, end quote. We are determined, he added, to shake off our bondage. And for that purpose, we stand on a good foundation. Many have joined, and if you will go with me, I will show you the man who has the list of names and who will take yours down. William offers to Peter the chance to come together. This startling discourse, Rentworth writes, was quite too much for Devani, for Peter. He was made of the wrong material for so daring a project. Pump. Oh, he was in slavery, so we give him a pass. Not really, because he's going to come down to history with another name. We continue. He says, his genius was culinary, not revolutionary. When all y'all think about this, who served this social structure and think you somehow making a dent because you're the first Negro to uh, be a brand consultant on some kind of million billion dollar thing they make in for you. Okay, anyway, giving some excuse for breaking off the conversation, he went forthwith to consult a free colored man named Pencel, Lord have mercy, who advised him to warn his master instantly. So he lost no time in telling the secret to his mistress and her young son. And on the return of Colonel Prelude from the country five days afterward, it was at once revealed to him. Within an hour or two, he stated the facts to Mr. Hamilton, the intendant, 
or as we should say, mayor. Mr. Hamilton at once summoned the corporation, paddle rollers, and by five o'clock, Devani and William were under examination. Devani, left will call Peter, that's the man known as Peter the Informer. William, the brother who offered to bring him into the conspiracy, was a member of the conspiracy known as the Denmark VC Rebellion, 200 years ago this weekend. Peter the informant told the white folk that VC and them was getting ready to strike the blow for freedom. I have stood in the well of Emmanuel, Mother Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our brother Cedric got married there. He's in Brazil. Poured libation at their wedding. And stayed in a hotel that was part of the old Citadel. That's where the Citadel came from. They said, we can't handle Denmark VZ rebellion. After they put the rebellion down and killed Denmark VZ and a bunch of other black people and arrested hundreds of them, because remember, Denmark Vesey was one of the founders of Mother Emanuel Baptist Church, uh, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Denmark Vesey was one of the founders of that church, the home state of Morris Brown, who's buried in Philadelphia because them white boys in South Carolina said, can't no free Africans be in South Carolina and Morris Brown can never go home. Morris Brown they just got its reaccreditation at Atlanta University Center, the only HBCU in the Atlanta University Center named for an African person founded by an African institution, the African, not the Negro, not the colored, not the African-American, not the Afro-American, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Morris Brown, South Carolinian mother the Emmanuel, the founding church of African Methodism in the South. Denmark Vesey, a founder of Mother Emmanuel. Denmark Vesey was put to death for a conspiracy that was given up by Peter, the informer. All you informing Negroes. We know y'all be lurking. It's all right. Because you're just a little afraid. That's all. But guess what? The stronger we get, the stronger you will get. And you might find your voice in some of these interviews you give in today as to what can we do. My point is this. 200 years ago, what was I got to do with Denmark uh, with uh, with uh, with Mark Delaney? We end with this. Remember on Monday night we talked about this sister Frances Rollins, who had to, given the sexism of the day in 1883, she published something called "The Life and Public Services of Martin R. Delaney, Sub Assistant Commissioner, Bureau of Re Relief of Refugees, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands, and Late Major of the 104th of the U.S. Colored Troops." Frances A. Rollins. Well, she published under Frank Rollin. This is a biography of Martin Robeson Delaney, published during his lifetime. Martin Delaney, whose father Samuel had been enslaved, whose mother Patty made sure that they knew how to read, which is why they had to get out of Virginia, whose wife Catherine, with him, Got married in 1843. They had 11 children. Everybody didn't live to adulthood. But as Larry will talk about on Monday night when we had this conversation, because he's out there all the time. He lives in nearby Dayton. He goes to Xenia all the time. Among their children, Toussaint Louverture Delaney, who was in the Massachusetts 54th. Charles Lennox Ramon Delaney, named for the great abolitionist. St. Cyprian Delaney. Boston Saluk Delaney, named for Haitian revolutionaries. Placido Ramses Delaney. He took Ramses from ancient Egypt, Catherine and Martin Delaney, named their son after Ramses II and the first name, Placido, we're going to talk about in part two of Blake because he was the great Cuban revolutionary who was executed for his own resistance movement and the baby girl Ethiopia Haile Amelia Delaney. Come on now. You Pan-Africanist Amelia. This uh, <laughs> They named their baby Ethiopia before the Civil War. But let's end with 
Memorial Day, Decoration Day, 200th anniversary of the Vesey Rebellion. No, Martin Delaney. Let's do it. And please indulge me, Prof. This is chapter 22 of Life and Public Services of Martin Robeson Delaney at Charleston and Fort Sumter. Ooh, remember May the 1st, 1865, Decoration Day leading to Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend. Let's sit with it for a second, y'all. Let's let this black woman writing about this black man take us home for today. Chapter 22, at Charleston and Fort Sumter. The excitement attending the scenes of the evacuation of the city and its occupation by the Union forces was scarcely lulled when it rose again on the arrival of, quote, the Black Major, end quote, to whom the rumor preceding his advent had given the rank of Major General. Where are we now? Spring 1865. Remember, Lee surrenders at Appomattox in April 1865, courthouse in Virginia, right across the street down here in D.C. Martin Delaney is not in Virginia. Martin Delaney, who Abraham Lincoln himself gave the commission of major and said, go ahead and recruit black troops. Delaney said, no problem. I'll murder everything moving, including you. Y'all better, y'all Texas punks. Y'all better next time parents show up at the building, they ain't going to be un unarmed. And guess what? Y'all pass the law so everybody can have a gun. Well, guess what? And in fact, another song Brian Jackson and Gil Scott Heron did, everybody got a pistol. Everybody got a 45. The philosophy seems to be as near as I can see. When other folks give up theirs, they give up. Other folks give up theirs, I'll give up mine. When other folks give up theirs, I'll give up mine. That's just got hearing. Hearing and Jackson, gun. So you want to get rid of the guns? Take them. The governor of California got a proposition to do that. Other folks give up theirs, I'll give up mine. Look, I wish, man, my man Black Thought, you know, I'm a Philly stan. That's my adopted hometown. Last uh, two summers ago during the rebellion, the so-called uprising, the so-called reckoning, he released that song, Thought Versus Everybody. <laughs> That's my song. I keep that on constant play along with Jay Dilla's version of the police. But anyway, so what, did, what did Thought say? He said, uh, it's imperative that we change the narrative. And damned if you didn't do it, Professor Hunter, you just put a K on it and the K is silent. And that's beautiful because it's narrative. It's imperative that we change the narrative. And it's like you just heard Black Thought and say, I got you. I got you, Chief. I see you. It's imperative. Everybody, every GD body, go listen to Thought versus everybody. He said, I bet on myself versus everybody. That's the attitude we should have back to the point. It's imperative we change the narrative. Let's change the narrative about Memorial Day, shall we? Decoration Day is beautiful. We should start there. No, let's start maybe a few weeks before May the 1st, 1865, in the same city where the Wesley Rebellion was planned 200 years ago this weekend. Let's go. Next paragraph. Arriving in the city on the Sabbath. That would be tomorrow. Boy, these ancestors don't be playing. Arriving in the city on the Sabbath. When most of the people were gathered at the various places of worship, the news soon became noised about. The black major is coming. It's a black major? It's a, it's, a, it's a black major? It's a black, I heard about him. What? And Martin Delaney was proud of his color too. <laughs> Martin Delaney, boy. Anyway, 
And from the early forenoon until long after nightfall, a continuous stream of visitors poured in upon him. Black folk coming to see Martin Lane, eager to pay their respects to him. These composed the colored residents of both residents of both sexes, women and men, representing every age and condition, nor did this cease when their curiosity became satisfied, but grew with their acquaintance and increased with time. At the time of his arrival, the population of the once proud city was limited, consisting only of a few regiment of Union soldiers on duty. The former free people, the new freedmen, a greater portion of the latter being driven from the plantations around the city and from the upper portions of the state, and a few white families representing the old element. White boys don't want to give up their power. Okay, Texas police that was punks. These Union soldiers, even the ones who didn't want to fight, they fought, they died. Black people dug them up, reburied them in the martyrs of the race tra race course. And they buried them and gave them honor. Memorial Day weekend, let's keep going. An air of mournful desolation seemed to brood over the conquered city. There existed no signs of traffic except in the suitors' stores of the regiments. So the Union Army has occupied Charleston. We're in the spring of 1865. Delaney is there. They have sent Delaney to Charleston, this black city now, because these Negroes in South Carolina outnumber the whites, and they're coming in from the plantations to the city of Charleston. This is what Dylan Roof was trying to redeem. This is what the white boy following Dylan Roof and wrote about him in the manifesto was trying to redeem in Buffalo. This is why they arm and practice and train while we sing, dance, and not pay attention. She continues to write Confederate bonds and script. I'm sorry, let me do that again. Confederate bonds and script. That's worthless money now. Were most plenteous. And but a small amount of currency was in circulation with which to purchase the common nece necessaries of life. They don't have too much money that's worth anything. For this cause, thousands were thrown upon the charity of the government for daily subsistence. Is this just black people? No. And this is the Union Army is now going to feed these people. Nor was it confined to the colored people, she writes, Francis Rollins. It was no uncommon sight to meet daily in the streets. Many of the former enemies of the government. I'll get CRT. Do you need your teeth fixed? Yeah. Nor was it confined to the colored people. It was no uncommon sight to meet daily in the streets. Many of the former enemies of the government loaded with its injustice, and then she has an exclamation point in parentheses, meaning what? I'm using that irony, uh, ironically. You damn Yankees, give me something to eat. That's all these voters in Georgia who are going to put a brain-damaged man in the United States Senate if y'all not careful. To take away everything. But they think they did something. And then they're going to scream that they need benefits. Continue. Many of the former enemies of the government loaded with this injustice to them in the form of a huge basket of subsistence received from the quartermaster's department, the army's feeding them, and in many instances assisted by some former chattel, black people, who in several known cases afterwards, with true Negro generosity, divided their own portion with them. Ain't that something? These poor white people and black people coming out of slavery. You starving? Yeah, see, that's Stacey Abrams trying to help y'all. That's Andrew Gillum trying to help y'all. That's the brother who just won the uh, nomination for Democrat, uh, Dr. Jones in Arkansas. 
trying to help y'all. But y'all gonna put a hillbilly like Sarah Huckabee Sanders in as the governor of Arkansas, and she gonna gut you like a stuck pig. Ain't that the Razorback? Ain't that y'all? Uh, University of Arkansas? Anyway. Yeah, I just talked to Dr. Jones. Uh, who's a yeah, we just had him on the show this week. Come in for a second. Tell me about it. What's your impression of that, brother? Oh, I mean, he he is a rocket scientist, first of all. First of all. First of all, <laughs> uh, went to an HBCU. Um, Morehouse, that's my Inspired by Ron McNair, who um, lost his life mm. on the Challenger, who also mm. went to an HBCU. So he and shout, shout, shout out to Ron McNair's daughter, who was a lawyer practicing in Texas, who helped us with my mother's probate estate. Just Ron McNair's daughter. Exactly. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm telling you, black people, we got to stick together. That's what the sister told me. Tell you, Ken. Go ahead. <laughs> so he, you know, he was inspired by, you know, watching that at eight years old, wanted to find out everything he could about Ron McNair and followed in his footsteps all the way to MIT. Mm. But he said, you know, learning about science is about finding solutions to problems. And seven generations from Arkansas, seeing what the problems are coming out of poverty and all of the things, all of the, you know, social economic problems that people have to now be this brilliant person to come back to his community to serve it. I don't know what the choice is. You know, you know? Is your whiteness or your life and they're going to pick their whiteness. That's why I told him he was on Rolling Show Thursday now. I said, you know, it's interesting because Huckabee Sanders, this clown, this utter lying clown got like 220,000 votes in the primary. The second place person got like 60, no, 58,000 or something like that. Dr. Jones got about 66,000 in the Democratic primary and won. The second place finisher, who was destroyed by Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the Republican side, the white national side, came within like 8,000 votes of the winner in the Democratic side. So, of course, my question was, how are you going to get these other people out to vote for you? And what's your relationship with the business community? And he has a great, as you know, got a PhD. The man went to MIT after coming out of Morehouse with physics, went on to get degrees in city planning and has worked for years with city planning in Arkansas. He gonna save you poor white people, but you gonna go right past him and go vote for this hill Billy. This inbred hill Billy. When I say inbred, I'm not talking biology. I'm talking ideology. This inbred hill Billy in Arkansas who will sacrifice you on the altar of her masters. And by the way, um, uh, shout out to Natalie James. Natalie James is the Democratic nominee for Senate, U.S. Senate in Arkansas. And if they had sense, they'd vote for her. That's a black woman. Black woman is a nominee for Senate in, in, in Arkansas. Just like a black woman is a nominee for Senate in North Carolina. Again, this is, is this the 1870s? Is this Reconstruction? Yeah. But here's the difference. There ain't no federal government helping on this side. This is the 2020s, which means what? When they break it this time, it ain't going to be no long freedom movement, civil rights movement to help you keep it back together because it's in our best interest. As Lou Outlaw told me the other day when I was interviewing him, he said one of the reasons, and this is a man who went on the faculty of Fisk, then spent years at Haverford. He and my man, Dave Williams, went to Vanderbilt and they did a whole lot of work down there. And one of the questions people always ask him, hey man, you from Mississippi. You from Starville, Mississippi. You came up in the segregated institutions, black excellence as y'all would call it, but I would just say excellence because we know excellence is an African thing. And even during segregation and, and enslavement and so forth. And I said, why didn't you work at whites, at black schools most of the time? He said, these whites, some of us had to go over here because it's in our interest to make sure that they are not uh, just with each other on these conversations that impact our lives. I said, I got to respect that, man. I got to respect that. Even as we understand that there are sacrifices 
There are sacrifices for Ken Hunter to be at Hunter and not Hampton or Howard. There are sacrifices for Greg Carter to be at Howard and not Columbia or Hunter. And guess what? All of those things can change at a blink of an eye. Why? Because none of those institutions are institute. I don't care if they're black or not. They are not the institutions that are going to save us. We're going to save ourselves and we have to have our own spaces. That's why narrative, that's why Nubia, as it continues to grow, is important. When we talk about jailbreaking the black university two years ago now, as we come into this space, that was the first step. The real step is to build the thing we want. We continue because again, the Joneses of the world want to help the Beto O'Rourke's, they want to help. But guess what? You're going to pick your whiteness or your life. And for people who say, I ain't going to vote, why wouldn't you? Why? Because you got your strap, because that's what's next. And ain't no guarantee who survives if everybody got a pistol, everybody got a 45. You better listen to Brian Jackson and Gil Scott here. We return to the text and we say that you see these Negroes coming out of the Civil War who had been enslaved helping these poor white people. Francis Rowland continues. She says, such was their position after the evacuation of the city. Never before in the history of Anglo-Saxon civilization were there such manifestations of genuine charity and forbearance towards an unscrupulous and implacable foe as indicated by the actions of government. Francis Rollins said, you ain't never seen nothing like this in your whole white civilization, have you? You enslaved us and we're going to feed your ass tonight. Goes on and says, quote, Oh, Reverend Wright, you know you're going to quote the Bible, right? Quote, I was hungry, and you gave me meat. Naked, and you clothed me, end quote. Were literally proven by these receipts of its immense charity. This gave promise of more con converts than the sword. This is what Stacey Abrams has been trying to tell you. I'm trying to help y'all. They closed your hospital. Now, don't you think it would be a good deal for every dollar you pay in taxes, you get eight back from the federal government to keep your hospital open? Yeah. Well, then vote for me and I'll do it. Nah, we're going to vote for Brian Kemp. You know, the one who had commercials with a damn rifle across his lap. Talking about he's sending hearts, thoughts and prayers. Keep your thoughts and prayers. Or or not. You could, you could pray. I, I encourage you all to think and pray. But here's where you make a mistake, Chief Rocker. Just like I was having that conversation in the streets of Charleston. When we were down there after walking through Charleston after leaving Mother Emanuel, walking around, and the brother told me, yeah, man, you see that uh, fence that them Africans put up around their white church? Yeah, they they put that fence up, and you see those symbols in it? Yeah. You know why they put those symbols there? Why? They said, because whatever they praying to in there, what we praying to in this fence, going to keep it contained in there. So you send your thoughts and prayers. We ain't praying to the same God. I'm going to continue. While the great concourse of people gathered for rations at different places, attracted thither the curious visitor, he would turn from this to the many evidences of the unerring precision of the batteries of Morris Island, the guns still firing. Remember, they haven't surrendered yet. Which met his gaze on every hand, suggestive of the tales of horror and in many instances of retributive justice through which they had so recently passed. Much property was destroyed and but few lives during the siege. This is the siege of Charleston, the last week of the Civil War. Frank Rollins continues, Francis Rollins continues and says, there were incidents related of marvelous escapes from the reach of these shells and also deaths of a most appalling character on being overtaken by them, the greater portion of the latter being colored persons, the innocent sharing a worse fate than the guilty. All right, 
I got a little bit, I got a little more to read them till I get to the point with Delaney, but y'all, you know, let's all stay together on this because this is a little emotional. Francis Rollins writes, one case of sad interest happening at midnight while the siege was at its height, occurring in a family representing the wealth, culture, and refinement of the respectable colored citizens of the city. He had some free blacks down there, right? Including some of these Negroes were slave owners, but that's a story for another day. The father of this family, a man of great mechanical genius, accumulated considerable property and established for himself a well-earned reputation as a skillful machinist throughout the state. They were aroused one night by the noise which usually precedes the near approach of a shell, which was seen by a member of the family to fall within a few feet of the house, who, occupying the third story of the building, attempted to escape below with his wife. But before either could escape from the room, a second report was heard, followed almost immediately by the appearance of a shell entering the roof above them, crashing through the ceilings, which, in covering the ladder with its debris, preserved her life. The fragments scattering, one of the pieces falling into the front room beneath, only disfiguring a bedstead, but not injuring its occupants, while another piece, more, re more remorseless, these those bullets that y'all called 911 several times, and y'all sat there in that damn room listening to them being slaughtered, while another piece, more remorseless, taking another direction, entered the back room, burying itself in the side of an interesting boy of 12 years, the little grandson of the old gentleman. The child, startled from its sleep by the double shock of the explosion and terrible wound, rushed from the room, exclaiming in his agony, Mother! Mother, I am killed! It was 11 days of the most excruciating excruciating agony before the angel of death relieved little Weston McKinley. Never did Christianity and true womanhood beam more beauteously than at the moment when the mother of that child, relating the wild confusion of the night, laying aside her own personal sorrow, said it was God's will that the deliverance of the South should cost us all something. Memorial Day. Major Delaney, and speaking of this class of Charlestonians, as well as the colored people generally said, quote, their courtesy and natural kindness I have never seen unequaled. While instances of their humanity to the Union prisoners at the risk of their own lives speak in trumpet tones to their credit, of which the country is already cognizant, end quote. On Tuesday after his arrival, an immense gathering greeted him at Zion's church, the largest in the city, indescribable in enthusiasm and in numbers in the church were supposed to be upwards of 3,000 while the yard and street leading to the church were densely packed. Almost done. Here we go. The resolutions passed on this memorable occasion by them we present here, embodying a testimony of their gratitude for their signal deliverance from a conflagration which threatened to involve them in a general desolation and of their patriotism, setting aside forever the error that the sympathies of the free colored citizens were enlisted on the side of their enemies and not that of the Union. Y'all catch that? Some of these free Negroes are which Confederates because they look, what's going to be better for me? Y'all better watch out, you HBCUs, hoeing for these other people, mm -hmm. you leaders. What's going to be better for me? 
Nah, what's gonna be better for us? You're not training leaders at HBCUs if you're training people to be individual pursuers of their individual interests and then turn around to the rest of us and say, get like, get on my level. That's not leadership. Martin Delaney's biographer, Francis Rollins, is saying some of these bourgeois Negroes in Charleston sided with the Confederates because they thought they could keep their wealth. One of them rich people, one of them rich black people in Charleston lost his grandson, Shell, his mother, mother, I am killed. And Major Delaney comes in, who could have sided with anybody. He was out the game, but he couldn't side. Why? Because his mama taught him how to read and write. His daddy was enslaved. He traveled the world making deals with the Africans. He wrote a whole novel about an international slave rebellion that we're reading. And here he is. This is a true story right here. Showing up in Charleston in April 1865, in the days that lead to Decoration Day, they become the anchor for Memorial Day on this weekend. Let us remember, let us have the momentum of memory of what governance, not the social structure, what governance looks like. We continue to a close here and he says, mm -mm -mm. many of those who had taken the side against the union, Rollin Wright, for many they were, who also participated in this meeting. Oh, now they want to come over. Okay. Because these black people, <laughs> you talk about ways of knowing. Lou Outlaw was talking about ethics the other day as we were talking. The ethic of being an African person. What does that mean? Why don't we just murder everything moving? Because we hold ourselves to a little bit of a higher standard. Not everybody. And we've certainly forgotten a few things. Let me continue. He says, we reproduce it meaning the resolutions. We, we reproduce it also as expressive of the sentiments gushing from the hearts of a people for the first time in their history holding a political meeting on the soil of Carolina with open doors, with none to condemn it as an act of lawful assemb unlawful assemblage, amenable to law for the act. Brevet Major General Saxton, that's Rufus Saxton, that 40 years in the movie stuff we talk about with Sherman and them. Brevet Major General Saxton and other distinguished officers were present and freely took part in the proceedings. Here, Major Delaney, for the first time, introduced the subject foremost in his mind. Remember, the war is not over. He's there to recruit. The foremost subject in Delaney's mind? That of raising an armée d'Afrique, an African army. That's what he told Lincoln. We need black soldiers and black officers. And I'm going to go get a whole black army and we're going to overrun the whole damn Confederacy. And if you play games, we'll come get you. Lincoln is like, yeah, make that man a major because he's going to win the war. You understand? Just like them parents outside that school. Next time, they're going to be like, police, either you got away, get down or lay down. You see, this is a different attitude. We continue. Which subjects met the enthusiastic approval of his auditors and the movement for the organization soon became popular. So he gives them this, the 3,000 in the church, the thousands outside, they cheer, we're for that. The white officers is like, damn, Delaney, man. Delaney, look, look, hey man, I'm a major, right? Major general, right? Okay, I got you, Rufus. Uh, Black army, what y'all think? Yay! The war about to be over. Continue the eventful 14th of April. That was the date which was so eagerly awaited came and the earliest beams of the morning found the city of the sea, nicknamed for Charleston, alive with preparations for the brilliant scene at Sumter. The war has now been declared over. Unconscious of its fearful, tragic close at Washington, 
The city was almost deserted during the ceremony in the harbor, for all were anxious to witness the flag in its accustomed place with its higher, truer symbol. This is the one gave Kapler King salute. This is the one Colonel Kaepernick kneel for. And this is the one Mabdul, uh, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf and Carlos Delgado. And them say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. But for these enslaved Africans, it ain't that they love the flag. It's that it's better than that damn Confederate battle flag. And they get ready to raise it at Sumter, where the first shots were fired in the Civil War that was inevitable. As Du Bois said, you planted the seed for this war when you wrote the constitution and guess what them seeds continue to grow in that raggedy ass document why because in 2022 you can't fix it it's gotta be remade or abandoned because you all have proven that you choose your whiteness over your life and you hide it in the state's rights in the literal federal framework of this thing but that flag went up at sumter the 14th of april 1865 three weeks before decoration day which became memorial day memorial day weekend let us read what francis rollins says on that day that flag went up at sumter here we go placed there by the same hands which were once compelled to lower it to a jubilant but now conquered foe maddened prior to their destruction white boys got mad and guess what oh i wish i were in the land of cotton they still got that flag oh yeah they showed it around your capital on january the 6th 2021 they still paraded around they got it involved in most of the states of the damn confederacy tennessee mississippi alabama they got a lone star in uh texas and in south carolina the damn place where it jumped off that's one of the only states in the south where there ain't no red and blue of the confederacy in it and white actually <laughs> Watch out now. In fact, they had to go to the Confederate battle flag because in the first fights of the Civil War, the soldiers couldn't tell the difference between the American flag and the Confederate flag. That's why they moved to the Stars and Bars, the red joint, because they was fighting, shooting each other with the same damn colors. Oh, be careful, be careful, be careful. But in South Carolina, they got a blue flag with the crescent and the palmetto on it. You can't even tell by their flag, but you can tell by their mentality. Tim Scott, how'd you vote last week when they tried to pass some legislation? And Tim Scott, you might have been one of them Negroes and your grandson got hit with a shell because your ass would have been somewhere siding with the Confederates. Tim, we see you. We see you, Tiny Tim. We see you, young boy. We see you. We continue now. He says, as the old silken bunting winged itself to its long deserted staff, thousands of shouts and prayers, fervent and deep, accompanying, greeted its reappearance. Major Delaney embarked to witness the ceremony. So Martin Delaney, Major Delaney, is on a boat headed to Fort Sumter. And y'all been in South Carolina? Some of y'all South Kakalaki Negroes know when I was down there, every time I go down there, I got to go to Fort Sumter. Go across there and look and see. Delaney's on a boat leaving the mainland, headed to Fort Sumter for the ceremony once again. Major Delaney embarked to witness the ceremony on the historic steamer planter. With its gallant commander, Robert Small. Come on, y'all. Y'all can't make this up. I would say somebody make a movie, but it better be a narrative, Professor Hunter, because y'all been messed it up in Hollywood. Don't make this. Don't touch it. Because y'all have Martin Delaney involved in some old B.I. Uh-uh. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. You can't be trusted because you listen to the voice of your master. And you, it, there's enough document to tell this straight. But y'all will mess it up. And don't make Blake. We'll handle it. Get Holly and them. Get, get Holly Garima a billion dollars. Let him alone. Let him and Shriek make it. Y'all don't make it. Robert Small, the hero of the planter. Woo! This is this happened in real life. She goes on, whose deeds will live in song and story, whose unparalleled feat and heroic courage in the harbor of Charleston. 
under the bristling guns of rebel batteries, bearing comparison with the proudest record of our war, will remain commemorative of Negro strategy and valor. I keep saying I'm finished, but this is the one that's going to, you know, the ancestors are here. Francis Rollins writes in the next paragraph on the quarter deck of the steamer, the major remained an interested witness. Beside him stood one whose father, can you guess? Whose father, can you guess? Whose father, believing and loving the doctrine that all men were born free and equal and within sight of the emblem of freedom, as it floated from the battlements of Sumter, dared to aim a blow by which to free his race. Betrayed before his plans were matured 200 years ago this weekend, the scaffold gave to Denmark Vesey and his 22 slave hero compatriots in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1822, the like answer, which Charlestown, Virginia gave John Brown. In 1859, Virginia was free and black soldiers were now quartered in the citadel of Charleston and garrisoned Fort Sumter. The martyred reformers had not died in vain. Delaney sailed to that island on Robert Small's boat with Denmark Vesey's son. Denmark Vesey, who was executed not under the Confederate flag, but the American flag. This is Memorial Day weekend. Remember from governance. Set aside that other stuff. And we'll get free. We've done it before. We'll do it again. <laughs> I tell you, someone is on um, More to come on Monday. Those yeah. of you who are Nubia, we'll see you uh, in Nubia. I'm going to be uh, sitting court with you and, and Larry Crow. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, 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 yes. yes. No, this is, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of... Uh, conversation in the chat about you know books on people who enslaved other black people and i'm like yeah, there are a couple of books on that yeah yeah but i'm like you know if go down your rabbit hole pursue with whatever you know and we can have that conversation remember we, we were having it in delaney he writes about that in delaney it's all we should have it in context in community with with you know being able to apply the knowledge that then will allow us to build that's Not, right not um just you know just to know that's right um, but that's right that's right don't don't get don't get caught up don't get caught up in the social structure as black thought says in thought versus everybody lady liberty face full of concealer <laughs> so don't, don't get caught up looking at that made up face we got some work to do <laughs> that's right. a lot of work and we're, we're gonna be here uh to do it i want to thank all of the the educators uh, who are in Nubia doing doing Ooh, yes. and the things that you know again um, that are required for us to get to the next place. You know, this is a long journey. It's not yes. going to happen overnight just because we wanted to. And we can't react to no. everything that's going on. We have to plan. We have, to plan. We have a blueprint. Architects don't build without a foundation and a plan. I know that. So um, let's keep planning. We got time, and I want to say thank you to you. Love you. Love you, Dr. Carr. Love you, Nubians. See y'all. Uh, Maroon's Medicine Chest tomorrow. Maroon and Medicine Chest. Let's do the Maroon. That's the real destination. Absolutely. Yes. Love you, Dr. Carr. Love, right. you, love you. Love you. Love you. Love you.